Welcome to the Spirit Anointing the Word, the podcast of Highland Church, Jamaica, New York, with Pastor Subash Cherian. We're so glad to have you with us today, and we're excited about God's Word because it gives us strength and hope for each and every day. Let's listen as Pastor Subash shares this powerful message. Father, we come this morning again, joining with the multitude those that have worshipped you earlier in many parts of the world and those that will continue to worship you in other parts of the world. But today, we join in the communion of saints in giving glory and honor and to say, Our Father God in heaven, you are almighty, you are omniscient and you are omnipresent and you are omnipotent. And we come to say, Lord God, our Father through Jesus, to you be glory and honor and power and might and dominion. Speak to us through your Holy Spirit. Minister even directly, precious Holy Spirit. Touch lives today, precious ones that are here and those that are watching. You know the situations. You know, O oh God, what they're going through, and won't you, O oh God, reach out even as they cry out to you. Touch their innermost being. And Father, we're so grateful that we can gather here this morning to praise you and to glorify you and to honor you. Thank you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Father, and God's people said, Amen and Amen. Give the Lord a clap. It's good to be in the house of the Lord once again. And just a great opportunity, we can come back into the Word of God. I began talking about, last week, needs must go. But this morning's message is, give me to drink. And this is the second part. And I just want to first begin with what would be needs go, and then talking about no, uh, nothing to do with the other The third is to do with give me to drink. The fourth is simply a jar. And the fourth is a cup. And the the fifth one is to do with uh, with simply identity. And the fifth if we can, sixth if we can, cover it, we'll be talking about thirst. But let me just ask us to turn to John chapter 4, verse 4. And this is a very important word that is speaking about imperative. John chapter 4, verse 4. He must needs go through Samaria. That is something that is so important that he must, in spite of everything that is against it, the fact with the culture of his day, the religion of his day, the persuasion of the people of that day, that's something you don't do. It's something you don't cross. There is a border, and sometimes it's not so pleasant. And for some, it's imperative they don't cross it. Because there's the enemy on the other side. Because there are people a little different from the other side. And so when you look at this passage, there was no love lost between the Samaritans and the Jews for many reasons. But what you're going to find is Jesus is not taking the view that is at large to say, the Samaritans are my enemies. No, he doesn't. Nor is he prescribing to the version that says that they are damned and there's nothing good going to take place and they are subjugated and they, are dom- they should be dominated and we have nothing to do with it. There's a lot of history behind it all. And there are others who say, if anything, send fire from above and completely burn them. I'm not talking about the present. I'm talking about 
what you find from John and James. Uh, they changed their view much later as, to walk, as they walked with Jesus. But when you come to Luke chapter 9, verse 53, the Lord's face towards Jerusalem, and the next verse, of course, that they were not happy to receive him because he was passing by to Jerusalem. They don't want that. You come to us, that's fine, but don't go and use us an intermediary. And so as a result, you find the disciples, James and so on, said, Lord, will thou at this time command fire to come down from heaven? And they even quoted the scripture, however wrongly, about Elisha. And now I want you to understand the response from the Lord in the next verse, in verse 55. He turned and rebuked them and said, You know not what manner of spirit you are. That's not what I'm about. Quite opposed to a political, religious, cultural view. And when you turn to verse 56, he explains it. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy people's life, but to save them. Not come to destroy, not come to destroy, but to save them. And so he went to another village. Fine, they don't want me. I'll move on quietly. So what you're going to find is there are reasons why there was anger. There are reasons why there is so much of hatred. But I mentioned the last time, of course, the Samaritans were upset. But so were the people in Israel were upset because there was a lot of history behind it. Number two, what you find is what the woman at the well is saying to Jesus in John chapter 4 and verse 9. We have no dealing. They don't have any dealings with us. So towards the end, the woman of Samaria says, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. There's no dealings there. We have no concord. We have no affinity. We have, in other words, nothing whatsoever in terms of connection. We are disconnected. We're different. We're so different. Really. But when you look at it, you're going to find, of course, there were, in many places, one. Except for the fact things happened in the history I explained the last time, the northern tribe, the southern tribe, and how the northern went ahead and didn't want the southern, northerners to go down to south to Jerusalem to worship. So they concorded something, and then ultimately the temple found its way for the, uh, for the Samaritans in Mount uh, um, Ephraim. What you're going to find in Gerizim is because of the anger of the people in Israel for having basically used God's name and used five laws of Moses called the Torah and all of the things from the Old Testament, they were so upset that one of the, of the uh, what you call, Ashmanite, from the Ashmanite kingdom, one of the Maccabees, went down and burned up the whole temple in Gerizim. And of course, it was not lost to the Samaritans to basically play tit for tat. And so in their anger, they began to assassinate any of the Jewish pilgrims going to Jerusalem. And ultimately, there was no way anybody could cross one or the other side. So the pious Jews would walk right around it rather than as the crow flies straight through. They would walk, uh, even if it means a double distance, but they would not go through those territory, and so they felt it is not worth the trouble. When you take the woman, for example, what we need to understand, a lot of problems, hostility, division begins with misconception. 
a misunderstanding. And then it gets elongated, and then people take advantage of it and keep drumming it until two that were very close basically get estranged. And when you look at the woman for one, you're going to find, number one, she was a Samaritan that the Lord Jesus Christ met at the well. So, of course, there's history behind the whole thing. So they're despised. And so to the Samaritans despised the people in Judah. Number two, she was a woman. That was basically not acceptable because only the men, and it's a patriarchal society, not a matriarchal society. And number three, questionable. Why would she come in the mid-afternoon when most women would come in the morning before the sun is out, particularly in the arid deserts of uh, Arabia, and take water? That's not the most convenient time. It becomes a jovial time in the daytime to morning to come in and congregate and gather the water and chit-chat and get all the news and, and exchange pleasantries and go home just before the sun hits. But of course, if you're shady, you have a past or whatever, that's the time you come. You don't need to have contact with anyone. So here in the mid-afternoon, the Lord is meeting with this woman who's by herself. And I want you to understand, there must be something questionable about her. So many a times we look and say, oh, there must be something crazy about it. Sad to say there was. We hear the fact that she's married five, and then the one she's shacking up with is number six, not in, not in marriage. Oh, then, that's it. That's it. They're just crazy. Just we don't want to have anything to do with them. When you look at it, really, only the Lord knows. We can condemn and it's so easy to be so pharisaical that we can take the laws and without basically binding ourselves to it, we could use that as a judgment call on people and throw the whole book at them. And sometimes we do that, and that is sad. But the Lord did not see any of this. Really, when you look at the fact, five husbands and the one she's living with, the sixth one is not hers in marriage, let me just say a little bit of the Old Testament. Thank God we don't live in the Old Testament. The Lord Jesus completed that. But when you look at Deuteronomy chapter 24 and reading in verse 1 and 2, you find if a man marries a woman and the man dies in order to raise the seed just so that the land would not, it would not fall upon another man to take the territory from that tribe. It must be someone within the family to raise a child. So the woman would have a child to claim inheritance. And so the brother would take the place. And if that brother dies, another brother. If that brother dies, another brother. If that brother dies, another brother. Could it be that five of them died? Well, you find this is what the Pharisees asked the Lord Jesus Christ hundreds of years later. In Luke chapter 20, verse 28 to verse 33, they said, supposing it was a trick question to trap him. What is it if a man married and then the, uh, he dies and then the other fellow brother marries and then he too dies and goes on to five and six and seven? And now the trick question, whose wife will she be when they are in heaven? And Jesus said, you do err, not knowing the scriptures. And many people err not knowing the scriptures, for they do not neither give in marriage or in marriage in heaven. And so we find this 
the fact that they asked this question tells you, of course, a woman could outlive five husbands. Each one of them must have died of something or the other. But if that's not enough, granted that, okay, this didn't happen, but she had five different men, you're living in a very patriarchal society where the men have every right, and the Old Testament, unfortunately, gives the man the privilege to divorce a wife to the point that part of the law, some interpret where the Lord Jesus Christ had to explain, at will, because she didn't please him. So what if the first man married her, used her, and then threw her out because he found someone else? The second one took her and used her and threw her out and cast her away. And the third one and the fourth one and the fifth one took advantage of her and threw her out. It's a man's world. And when you think about it, you cannot go out without a man. You have to have a father. You have to have a brother protecting her. But if you don't have a father and you don't have the brother around, what do you do? you got to have someone. And who knows? There she met a man after all that she's gone through. Or if she had left their husband, the five husbands because they were so abusive and met a man. But she didn't want to have any more problems with a marriage. And she, only God knows the situation. She has gone through very abusive, very sad situation. We look at the outward, say the law. The Lord looked at beyond the law and looked at the hearts. And he was not there to condemn. So he comes to her and he asks about the husband, but doesn't condemn her. Not once. And said, no, in that you said it's true. But you have the sixth one. And so she explains. Why? Just so that we realize the Lord is bringing her to something greater truth without that condemnation. But let me just say this. In the many respect, we would look down on such a person as a Samaritan, as a woman, as someone with a history. Don't we? And so when you look at this aspect of a lot of things, in terms of misconception taken from the Old Testament and basically reinvented it so that we could, it would support our system, our style. As long as somebody else, particularly the one vulnerable, the women and the children are hurt, it doesn't matter. And so here's the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the most conservative person when it comes to the scriptures. He defended everything to do with what the liberals would say at his time. That's a fairy tale. That's a myth. He said that is the truth. And yet when it comes to conservative, he's the most liberal person when it comes to love. I'll explain in just a moment. Stretching out God's love, God's compassion, God's grace. And what you find in the midst of all the battles and the wars that we have, we find it all starts with some misconception, a misunderstanding. Ultimately, it goes into division, and from division to hostility to hate. And that is what happened. And then it's escalated to such a level that the past is taken out of context, rears, rears, rears permanently forever. A sibling rivalry, a family, a tribe, a brother, and a brother. Nation and nation simply becomes an outright war. And you're going to find it's a sad situation, particularly when you see the Samaritans. They could never forgive somebody from the other side burned our temple. 
And so the children will be singing and saying and learning, kill the Jews, kill the Jews, kill the Jews. That becomes like a story, and that's a passion. Rather than letting the children say, you're living in a new age, a new um, generation. You don't have to carry the past hatred and pass it on and simply uh, completely overrun over it. But on the other hand, here were the people from Judah saying, you can't forgive what they have done. We're superior. In fact, they are animals. Oh, let's put the word, they're dogs. And that's how we look at it. So this get into such a volatile situation. They're not the only people. It happens in the past. It happens even now. And it will continue to happen. Think about two nations. Literally together. The Houthis and the Tutsis. Look at the war. Look at the mess. Look at the pain. The hatred. It all began with people wanting to take advantage, and there'll always be either extreme left-wingers or the extreme right-wingers, want to be elected, want to take over, and they begin this propaganda until everybody gets it. We got to kill them. We got to kill them. You look at what have taken place in North Ireland between the Catholics and the North Ireland Protestants. Look at the war that takes place, uh, retaliation and anger, and the, crea the creation of ISS as a result. It experience, it begins to move into such great degree that there's hatred and volatile. There's like waiting for someone to light the match. You know, it's just not somewhere far away. It can take place, and it has taken place in our own country. Just a few years ago, a young black uh, African-American had gone down to, was coming hitchhiking from work. Three picked him up and said, we'll take you to your house. And he had no idea that they were basically, maybe he may have, but they were basically white supremacists. They beat the crap out of this man, tied his, toes, uh, tied his uh, ankles to the back of their wagon, dragged them all the way until literally the skin came out and you could see the bones exposed. And they kept driving until his shoulder was taken off and then his head went off and they just went down and had a barbecue party. Now I want you to understand, this sort of things run deep and wide in every society. People are willing to, live, to believe the lies then believe the truth. And so this little thing that takes place becomes into what would be a battle and then into a war until basically there's no more agreement. And children after children after children repeat this tradition long after everything else is said and done. But go back and you're going to find there's somewhere some connection. There has been some relationship. So the woman says... The Jews have no dealings with us. We have no dealings with them. Of course you had dealings. Of course you had more than dealings. You all were related. Think with me, even to a large extent, what we see today was a relationship problem. But it goes all the way back to Isaac and Ishmael. goes all the way back to Jacob and Esau. And every battle takes place between something that happened between, can never be forgotten, and it is basically part of the memory and part rehearsed. So when you 
think of what this woman says, for we have no dealings. They have no dealings with us. That is the present. So she's living with the past and says, we have no dealing. They have no dealings with us. When you turn to number third point, is a jar, a clay vessel. Let me just ask you to turn with me to John chapter 4 and verse 7. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ coming and saying of this woman of Samaria, give me to drink. Give me to drink. Here is Jewish person who has no dealings with the Samaritan. Who would not even drink from their own jar. Is asking, give me to drink. Do you have a cup? Do you have a jar? No. Do you understand what you're doing? You're not supposed to drink from the same jar. But he comes and says, give me to drink. That's something we need to understand. Two things that are common, no matter where you come from, no matter what your religion, no matter what your past, no matter what color, no matter what culture, we all go back, and anthropologists have talked about a jar. As they dig up, it looks the same. Whether you go to Africa, or whether you go to Asia, or whether you go to Europe, the jar is a jar. This is a vessel that brings water. And they are similar. And that is not the only thing in commonality. Water. No matter where you go, water is water. Unless someone colors it. Poisons it. Makes it a different from what water is. Whether you go into the far reaches. As far as you can remember. Water. That is everywhere the same. Whether you go to Africa, or whether you go to Europe, or whether you go into the Middle East, water is water, just like the jar. There's a commonality. So here is what the Lord Jesus is saying to the woman, give me to drink. You have something in common with me. That jar we use, that water we drink. Water is so important to mankind. 98% of our body is water. If there's water, humanity survives. If there's no water, is the end of humanity. I want you to understand water, like many things, is an essential commodity. It doesn't matter you're white, black, Jew, Christian, Muslim, or Asian, or brown. It doesn't matter where you come from. There are certain commodities that are for everyone that they need. So, money is something we all need. A gold in the hand of a Muslim is as good as a gold in the hand of a Christian, or a Hindu, or a Jew. Education is something we all look for. And there is in the heart of people everywhere, my children have to go and be well educated, have health and safety and security. That is in the heart of people who live in the far, farthest corners of the earth to the people in the greatest metropolitan cities of the world. And I want you to understand 
These are essential commodities, whether you call grain. It doesn't matter where they come from, whether they come from Ukraine or whether they come from anywhere else, Russia or whatever. The world needs oil. It doesn't matter where it comes from the Middle East. The world needs resources, and the West has them, but everyone needs that. So when you look at it, we are a humanity. Water, water, water. So Jesus, our Lord, is asking of the Samaritan woman, in spite of the fact people would not cross the border, he crossed the border. In spite of the fact people put up a wall, he broke the wall, so he'll be able to bring two together. Nothing should divide, and if you want to find out what is the heart of God, look at the Lord Jesus. And so when you look at what he's asking, he says, a jar, give to me water. But you don't have a vessel. You don't have a jar. These are uniform. These are literally common everywhere. He's not asking something extraordinary. But he's not going to let any division take place, any hostility take place. He's not a messenger of what would be destruction. He's a messenger of peace. Thinking about this, I want you to understand, wherever you go, there are certain things that are important for our survival. Literally seven things we can't do without if we have to breathe and live. Number one, we need air. Number two, we need water. Number three, we need food. Number four, we need clothing. Number five, we need a habitation to live. Number six, we need a rest or sleep. And number seven, when we do sleep, we want to be safe. That is the aspiration of everyone. Whether you be a person of one color or one religion or of one race or of one nation, it doesn't matter where you come from, these are universal need, just like the jar that goes to the ancient, ancient, ancient world, to the water. It is today different today, but still a jar would be different today in the modern version, but the water is still the same. I want you to realize something, that across the world, though people would divide us, bring the past to separate us, the Lord is bringing people together, and before even it could be done, the hearts of people would be turned towards God. And the price of sin is paid. And I want you to understand and then to bring peace within ourselves and peace within each one. Between people and nations. It's important we understand the need for water in every nation of the world. The need for air in every nation of the world. The need for quality food and health and rest and a place to call home is the heart cry of every person in the world. So it doesn't matter whether they migrate this way or that way. They're looking for a new life where they cannot find it. Sometimes things happen and we exaggerate to the point it could have, could have led to a third world war. We went through what would be our 9-11. There was destruction, there was pain, and there was 
hate running deep within. And out of an anger, we chose to strike at the wrong people, creating such a mess. But let me remind you, we were all afraid of bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. Everyone from the Middle East is an Al-Qaeda. Everyone from the Middle East is either bin Laden or a cousin of bin Laden. We couldn't trust them. It was so difficult, every one of us realized how difficult it was. One day I realized my son has friends all over, but he doesn't have what would be Middle Eastern. Something that he has never learned, the Middle Eastern music. So I said to him on a vacation, I'm going to take you to the Middle East. And he said, excuse me, what for? So he called his mama and said, this is crazy. And I said, I'm taking you to the Middle East. We were at the airport. He was screaming. He was looking for a cop to report me that I am taking him to the Middle East. And he looked at me and said, Dad, do you want me to be killed by Al-Qaeda? Bin Laden is still alive. He could kill me. I'm an American. Why do you want me to go down there? I said, because you got to learn at a young age. So we went down to Middle East. Go back next year. Summer, he's tinkering around and looking around. I said, son, what do you want? He's still looking around and tinkering around and said, dad, uh, I just want to. I said, what is it you want? Now, do you think this summer I could go to the Middle East? I said, what for? Said, good people, dad. Nice people. So I said, what about the Bin Laden? It's not all of them Bin Laden, dad. I want you to realize, yes, give the Lord a clap offering. There are bad people. In every culture, in every religion, in every society. That does not mean everybody is bad. Don't lump a whole lot. I want you to realize it doesn't matter black, white, brown. It doesn't matter it is Christian, Jews, Hindus, or atheists. There are good people and there are bad people in every place. In the midst of what's happening right at this moment, there are what would be extreme right wing. And the whole idea is bomb the whole lot of them. And of course the reaction could be, we're going to retaliate, wait till we get an opportunity and literally have a little suitcase bomb and get you out blasting. Anger, hostility, war will never end. But in the midst of them all are good people, honest people, whether they are Christians, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, atheists, black, white, or brown. Do not fail to look for them. They're everywhere. They don't live with that hatred. It doesn't matter what background. They have learned to accept and to learn to see how they can live peacefully amongst people. You can find bad people. Oh, yes, even in, within Christians. But you can also find very good people. I find remarkable in the midst of all that's happening in Israel, I want you to realize we look around and many of 
The good doctors we have are Jewish. The good lawyers are Jewish. Good people around are Jewish. We look around and see there's good people. No matter how much we might disagree with America, there's no place like the good old United States. People say, get out! And when they say, get out, and when you go, please, can you take me there with you? No country is 100% perfect. So when you look at the Arabs, I want you to realize almost everything we get today, whether it's in terms of science or whether in terms of mathematics or in terms of whatever, one nation or the other have contributed towards what we are today. And we are climbing on the shoulders of many people before us, and we need to appreciate that. You can find good people in the midst of bad people. You could find honest people in the midst of dishonest people. I had actually just recently come from Dubai. On my way, I had basically my cell phone, and for some reason I basically forgot it in the plane. And then I discovered as I was in my niece's car, and I said, oh, I've lost my service, uncle. Don't worry, you'll get it. I said, what are you talking about? He said, uncle, don't worry, this is Dubai. I said, what's so great about Dubai? He said, a couple of our friends have lost so many things. One of our friends lost a million dollars in the taxi. And the cops called them and said, the driver has come and picked it up. Their laws are strict, okay? So I wanted to realize, I said, you know, I'll wait, I'll call. I did that. They said, we haven't found your phone. So I said to my niece, okay, about this million dollars may be good for that man, but something like cell phone doesn't work in Dubai. So I went off to India, and on my way back, Deb said, let's just get into the office and see, ask about the phone, like they have nothing else to do. So we came in, and the phone was waiting for us. Think about it. So there are honest people among all people. There are dishonest people amongst all people as well. So whatever we do, we must realize, don't generalize everyone. We need to recognize that we must be at peace and learn to be able to shake hands with people and bring peace because we follow the Prince of Peace. It's important we understand that no matter where we come from, we are a community. No matter where we come from, we are a humanity. We need one another. And so it's so important to realize that no matter how much we disagree with many people, in general, we have so much that is a commonality than disagreement. Yeah, there would be disagreement, and we can't make compromises all the time, but as much as possible, the Bible says, live at peace with all men. And one of the things we must realize is, no matter how different people are, we have such a thread that leads us more to commonality than when we focus so much on our differences. In general, look at it. Majority of the people believe in a higher power. They believe in God. The majority of the people believe in prayer. Meditation, seeking God, and they do it devoutedly. 
They do it with all their hearts. There's a large number of people, by and large, across the horizon, across the world, that want to be honest, that want to work hard, that want to live, want to make sure their children get a future, to make sure there is safety and health. Within the hearts of people, there are people that are caring and loving, and if need be, will protect you as much as possible. You know, there are two families for 850 years have been protecting and guardians of a church in Jerusalem called the Church of Sepulchre. The year 111187, when Saladin had basically conquered and uh, disbanded the, uh, the crusaders, he basically made sure that this particular church is protected. He gave it to two families. And then years later when the Ottoman Empire came, the empire said, you all continue and these two families till today protect this church in Jerusalem called the Church of Sepulchre. And by the way, they're Arabs. And by the way, they're Muslims. So when we look at scale, in spite of all the difference and all the things that we hear, there's so much good. If it was not for the Jewish faith, there wouldn't be our Lord Jesus Christ, let alone the prophet of Islam. We have so much. But then that's not the end of it. We move from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the world. And one of the things we must realize, this is a neighborhood. I haven't seen the movie, but I was told it's a good movie, a beautiful day in the neighborhood. It's a story, really, a biological story of, of Fred Rogers, a great man. He was a minister. He had loved to be in this neighborhood, and he brought about this sense of unity. And the movie has so far done so well, long after he has died. So there's a movie about him, a great movie, and we are in a neighborhood. Think about it, my friend. When Mother Teresa was asked what she finds it so difficult, she said to see the many disguises, disgusting disguises of the Lord Jesus. What do you mean by that? He says, the Lord comes in what you cannot imagine. He could come as the one that is so forsaken, ostracized, ugly, as someone who hates me, as someone who wants to destroy me, I see Jesus in so many disguises. He's part of my neighborhood. I need to reach out to him. Guess what? Jesus Christ, our Lord, stretched his boundaries of love, and he included a Samaritan where everyone else hated and he said to her, I am your neighbor. I will love you. I will protect you. I will stand for you. When the Lord Jesus Christ wanted to give an example, he could have picked up some noble people from his community. On the contrary, he gave an example of a man called Samaritan who reached out and helped and maybe the Lord who sees the hearts of people have seen this man and gives us an example 
The world over, people call this man a different name. Whether you call it the Jews, the Muslims, the Hindus, the atheists, or whatever, they use the word, the Good Samaritan. It's not there in the Bible. The Lord talked about it, but he brings an evoked feeling from you. What do you say of this man? Good Samaritan. A Samaritan that is looked down upon, spat upon, a person who is not into any of our society, the Lord makes him the hero of the story, reaching out to help. It's the heart the Lord looks to, not the outward part. He sees the heart of the Pharisees and says, Woe unto you! And he looks to that Samaritan and lifts, up, lifts him up, and we call him the Good Samaritan. That goodness is there in humanity. There's so much within humanity that is good in the midst of horribleness and terribleness. Remember, we live in an ugly world, a sin-forsaken world. And yet there are mothers willing to give their life for their children. And there are fathers who are willing to give their life for their families. In the midst of all that you hear of the rotten things of homes and families, husbands and wives. There are good people we don't hear much about. And it could be a Muslim, a Hindu, a Jew, a Christian, or just about anybody. There are people with a feeling. I see this young man. He stands up there with a little sign standing up there. He's got a skipper, he's got a stillet. He's young, he's Jewish. But when you read the sign, he says, I stand for the people of Gaza. Excuse me, that's not your religion. And yet you see someone who is basically wearing a toque, who's basically got the, uh, who's a woman who's got a hijab, and says, I stand for Israel. What is it about these people? The goodness of people in the midst of evil. They stand to say, let's make peace. I want you to realize the Lord Jesus Christ does something so remarkable. He does something that reaches out to this woman, moving out of the culture, out of the confines of his what would be good, bad, and ugly, and reaches to what people would call ugly and bad. He stretches his frontiers, he stretches his love to people Across the world, that is the Father's son, for God so loved not one kind, the whole world. Not just Christians alone or the Jews alone, the whole world that he gave his only begotten son. And Jesus Christ came for the world. E. Stanley Jones, one of the greatest statesmen missionaries in India. He's written a book called The Christ of the Indian Road. He could have written a book. Christ of the African road, Christ of the American road, Christ of whatever world. What he meant in this book was, don't try to change the culture to make it European. Try to change the heart. Work with the culture, because many a times you are working with people, not against people. Learn to appreciate the other man. What if you were on the Samaritans 
land. How would you learn about them? In spite of whatever you say from your culture, from your background, from your religion, from all what the politicians are saying, you will not know the plight, the hardship, the pain of the African Americans. I find that when COVID vaccination was taking place, I saw this right in front of my office. Lines and lines and lines of people wanting to be vaccinated. Very few, if any, blacks. So I asked them, what happened? He said, we have a hard time trusting the government because of the things they did to us. How do you know it's not poison? Until and unless you walk in their shoes, you will never be able to appreciate why and how and what is it about. The pain that they have gone through the years. You will never know until you walk in their shoes. You will never know the Samaritan woman's pain until you have individually walked in her shoes. And then you will realize why the Lord Jesus Christ made a tryst, a date, a moment in time when history stops so he could talk to this woman. You wouldn't, I wouldn't, but he did. But I think about it, my friend. A whole chapter. He even explains that he doesn't explain to others. He spent more time here than the discourse with his disciples. Explaining his heart about She's saying worship, and he explains worship in such a dynamic way that you would think she's a scholar, and yet there's a man who comes at night in John chapter 3. He doesn't understand what born again is, just as much as she, an uneducated woman, couldn't understand, and yet she was the beneficiary of such deposit of God's grace. I want you to realize, number four, I talked about, give me in that jar. I will, I'm willing to drink from that jar. Your water, your jar. She must be thinking, what's this crazy Jewish rabbi coming into my land? Why? Even my own people will not touch me, but he wants to drink from my cup, my water. What? And who is he? When you turn to John chapter 4 and verse 7, give me to drink. Not simply from a jar, but from a cup. Let me explain. When you come to believers, we drink from the same cup. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 17. We are that one cup, that one body. And goes on to say, I believe it's one of this, I may have forgotten where it is, but it's maybe 19. One cup, one body, and that's we are one bread. That's oneness. It's a very explicit picture where we come from. I remember sitting at my grandfather's church. He was a vicar for 57 years in the church that he built. 57 years, and then I was a kid. As I grew up, I had communion 
It was passed around. It was that one cup. They're strong about it. So now when I was a pastor about 50 years ago in a place in Pune, I'd finished communion and kept it up, and I had staying in my place, uh, parsonage, were Capuchin monks, order of the Capuchin monks. They wanted to live there for three months, ended up living there for four or five years. So I was surrounded by Capuchin monks, and I was not living with them. They were living with me. So I remember finishing the communion, and this uh, Father Michael Pierce, what a wonderful man, happened to be at many, many years ago when I was a kid. He was into his school that he was the principal of. And he looked and said, oh, what's going on? I said, what happened? He said, is this communion? I said, that is communion. He said, I see a little communion juice here. I said, so what? He said, no, you got to drink it. Because it, I said, you believe this is the literal blood. I believe the spiritual blood. So let's not make a big deal about it. He says, no, I can't sleep. For God's sake, please drink this. Now, you know, I want you to understand, 200 people put their lips into this <laughs> cup. So to please this man so he would have a good night's sleep, I drank it. But I would tell you something. I've never forgot that moment where one people drinking from that one cup. Why? Because Jesus Christ came from heaven and he became part of humanity. I want you to understand it is God reaching out and saying, I'm entering into your neighborhood. In fact, the message is simply, John chapter 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The messenger says, the word just became flesh and he decided to be our neighbor. What a wonderful thing, God in flesh. And I want you to understand something unique about this one cup, unlike that one jar, that we need to realize it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter whether you're black or you're white or brown. I'm so glad in the midst of everything, my predecessor comes from south. He's white. My friends are black and I come from brown. Does it matter? We drink from the same cup. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. It says, he made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man. I want you to understand Ephesians chapter 2, and verse 15 says, he broke down the middle wall of partition, and it tells us he made us one new man. Doesn't matter, the new man is white, black, or which culture, or what background. We are one new man. Like humanity at large, we are one. I want to realize something very important. Paul makes it very, very plain. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, and how strong is it? This is what he said. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither born nor free. There's neither male or female, for you are all one. One in Christ Jesus. People tell me, you're an evangelical, aren't you? 
you should be waving Israeli flag, isn't it? I said, I neither wave Israeli flag, nor do I wave Gaza flag. I wave the flag of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. I want you to realize this very important. For some evangelicals, they believe in importance, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and then Israel. I'll tell you what I believe from the scriptures. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are one. But then Jesus said, how will people say you are my disciple? Let me read John chapter 13 and verse 35. By this shall all men know you are my disciple if you love one another. You are originally from Puerto Rico, are you? You are from south, all the way deep south in America. You are from Guyana, Jamaica. I can call out the nations around here. What brings us together? We are not in any sense together one family in the natural, but we are one family in Jesus Christ. Humanity is one. Poke anyone, black, white, or brown, the blood is red. But you reach out to people of God, the blood is Jesus' blood that makes us one. And as people of God, we need to stand up to be the voice of God, the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ, and say, let there be peace. And this is so important, you know. There's something I wanted to understand about this woman, a Samaritan woman. Look at something I want to talk about in point number five. And this is simply discerning. To be able to identify. She has been coming day after day in the mid-afternoon to draw water. And there is deep in her heart a longing for truth. She's looked down by her own people, the Samaritans. She has a checkered past, they say. She's worthless. She's just inching away and trying to live somehow. And we don't know how she makes it. Has religion helped? Has her neighbors helped? But what you find is she comes to this place and she's searching. There's something I like about this woman. And this is something so incredibly amazing. And I find this, this woman deep in her heart is a thirst. First, let me just say, she's asking Jesus Christ a very important question. When you turn to John chapter 4 and verse 12, she's saying, are you greater than our father Jacob? Hold that thought. Are you greater than Jacob? Jacob is a great man. He's the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. That is patriarchal history. Are you greater than Jacob? But when you turn to verse 19, look at what she says. The woman said unto her, I perceive from, are you greater than Jacob? She comes and says, I know that in my knowing, in my knowing deep within, 
something about you. You stepped out of your boundary into my boundary. You stepped out of your people to be my people. There's something about you I perceive. You are a prophet. Now from there she goes another step. And when you turn to John chapter 4 and verse 24, look what she says to the others. Come, see a man which told me all things that I ever did. Is not this the Messiah, the Christ, greater than Jacob? Greater than a prophet. She perceived he was a prophet. I don't know if you know this. Understand the very pain and the things of so many that have gone through with the ISIS and Hamas. That being said, everybody is not ISS. Everybody is not Hamas. But I want to say this. In all of literature, you will not find a statement from any Muslim worth its salt blaspheming against Jesus. Do you know why? Because he is a prophet. Second step. That is what she said, I think you're a prophet, but she goes beyond to say, you're more than Jacob, our father. You're more than a prophet. You are the Messiah. What is it about him? John chapter 1 verse 4. He tabernacled with us. God becoming flesh. Something about her is so interesting. Check it pastor. What do you want to say about her? Or what do you want to say about the Jews or the Samaritans or the Hindus or the Muslims or the Christians or the atheists? There is within each one of us and within every one of us born is a desire for water, for the basic necessities of life. And there are people everywhere that has a desire, but beyond the natural desire, there's something I want you to understand. When you turn to John chapter 4 and verse 15, listen carefully to what this woman says. Sir, give me this water. Excuse me? You, ma'am, have the bucket. You, ma'am, have your father Jacob's well. But she says, give me this water. From what would be the concrete, from what would be the real, into what would be the abstract, metaphorical, and beyond that, the spiritual. I want that water that I will never thirst. Deep in the hearts of everyone is a desire. I want more than religion. I want more than this. I want more than culture. I want no more than black or white or brown. I want water, spiritual water. I want salvation. Here is what Isaiah says in 55 verses 1 and 2. Oh, everyone, not just one group. The prophet of Israel said, Oh, everyone that thirsted, come ye to the waters. And he that had no money, come 
You buy and eat, yea, come buy one and money without money without price. Verse 2. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread? And your labor, that which not labor, this is something beyond the natural. Far beyond the essentials of basic life in the natural, there is far beyond the spiritual that everyone desires. And that can only be found in one who came to be the emissary of, of God eternal. Sometimes I think, Every step this woman is making, as she goes to draw water in the afternoon with the sun hitting her, as harsh as it could, it didn't matter. She's alone. She's carrying that jar. But every step of the way, as she goes to draw the natural water, is even as a deer that wants that water, there is a water that she says. And this is the cry of everyone, this woman's cry, and Jesus knew it. It says in Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, as the deer panted after the water brooks, so panted my soul after you, Lord, more than this water. I don't know what life is. I've had a miserable life. God only knows. God knew. That's why he sent Jesus Christ. He right entered into her own territory, waited for her, and said, give me water. And she says, so panted my soul. And verse 2, look what David says. My soul thirsted for God, for the living God. When shall I come up here before God? She did. When Jesus was sitting there and waiting for her. You know, Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3 and 4 is so important. When you look at this passage, therefore with joy shall you draw waters out of the wells of salvation. And verse 4, in that day you shall say, praise the Lord. She went to draw water. She had a cup that he wanted to drink in. She had a jar out of which she, he wanted that water. But in the end, she drank from his cup and drank the water of the living water. And wherever you are today, you and I could be that woman. Bursting out everything else, here comes the Son of God. Here comes the very incarnate. God who is not understandable who is far beyond human mind, comes down in flesh and says, I love you, but I'm going to do more than just coming into your neighborhood and being your neighbor. I want to take you, no matter what your checkered past is, and take you up where you would be my neighbor, in my neighborhood, in heaven. For eternity, this woman would always be grateful in heaven as she sees the face of God, she will say, thank God for someone that came into my city, Sychar, into Samaria, and gave me water. Give me, he said, to drink, but I have drunk of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. 
We pray that you've been encouraged by the word of the Lord. To learn more, please visit our website, highlandny.org, or our Facebook page, Highland Church, New York. Until next time, may God richly bless you.